Okay, so everyone, before we start, I have a confession to make. This is not, in fact, the podcast we promised you. We promised you a podcast with Andrea Palandri on Marco Polo. But that was before I realised that today is actually St. David's Day, the patron saint of Wales. Um, and that I also actually have an interview with a Welshman about Welsh, which seemed much more suitable for the day that's in it. So that's why we shuffled things around a bit. And you'll be listening this month to an interview with Professor Barry Lewis, who works on medieval Welsh. And next month, we'll be giving you the podcast we promised you with Andrea Palandri. So please ignore my podcast counting. And did goil dawi hapis. How would you say, I'm not used to that work? Hello, Agus Falcharesh to our sixth episode. In this episode, I talk to Professor Barry Lewis about his work on medieval Welsh, about the fact that, get this, he had a limitless supply of secondhand books when he was younger, and about how he found his passion for Welsh eventually through a path that began with German grammar, ran through Russian, until it finally led him to Aberystwyth and then to Dublin. And you'll also find out why he might be the Indiana Jones of medieval Welsh poetry, without the typical level of destruction. And my apologies to all Welsh speakers out there. Hello and welcome to episode number six of Nianza, the School of Celtic Studies Research Podcast. And today I'm joined by Professor Barry Lewis, who will provide us with a change of scenery uh, because we've been talking mainly about medieval Irish up to now. Um, but he works mainly on medieval Welsh. Um, he is uh, a professor at the school since 2014. Um, and he is the editor of the journal Celtica that we run, as well as a lecturer in Maynooth. So, hiya, Barry. Uh, see my... Smiley catching you on there. All right. That was the extent of my Welsh. So <laughs> I don't believe that for a moment, but I'll let you off this way. <laughs> well, my modern Welsh anyway, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, so... Um... Since that is the extent of my Welsh and perhaps also the extent of the Welsh of our listeners, um, let's get started on the podcast. So um, you have been informed that I will be asking you questions in uh, Old Irish. You don't have to mm -hmm. answer them in Old Irish. You can answer Good. in English. Um, and the first question that we always ask is... Cest. Uh, what is your name? And what brought you here? Oh, so I'm Barry Lewis, and uh, as Nika says, I work on medieval Welsh language and literature. What brought me here? Well, it's, a, it's very broad. <laughs> so it's a very I long suppose, question. Yeah, I yeah. suppose basically, what got you uh, on the path of medieval Welsh? Because it's not an obvious choice, I suppose. It isn't. No, and uh, um, as you can imagine, the path was probably quite was a. Uh, long and twisty as it were. That's good. So I suppose it began when I was in school, when I was in secondary school, I wanted to be a scientist, would you believe? Oh, what kind of scientist? Did you have oh, well, a, an didn't. idea or just <laughs> no, I didn't get that far. a cool lab coat and, uh, and uh, steamy vials? And... Well, yes, but uh, the maths ended up killing my interest anyway. So. <laughs> but uh, what really happened was about, yeah, about when I was about 13, at that age, you get your second language where you used to in the British school system, and mine was um, uh, German. Right. And I was completely, yeah, I was completely captivated by, by this because suddenly uh, there was this thing called grammar, ah. which we just didn't do in school until this point. <laughs> there was verbs and nouns and subordinating conjunctions and relative oh, pronouns. Who doesn't love them? <laughs> <laughs> and I had, we weren't doing these in school, but of course we were, uh, we were doing the usual, what's the way to the beach and can I have a coffee please? But of course, yeah. I was reading, I was reading behind the scene and these things were coming up and I had no clue, no clue what they were. Subordinating conjunction, I didn't even know what a noun was. 
So I don't, that's not a situation I, I, I can usually put up with. So <laughs> not knowing some, what something is. No, no, this, is when, <laughs> this is when it gets to me. So I got a little grammar book, uh, um, a German one and an English one, really old English one, 1910s something. Oh, public wow. school grammar. You were very motivated at that age to. Uh... Well, my, my dad dealt in second-hand books, so he actually had really? piles of things in his in his back in his garage. And his... That's my dream. Like, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm so jealous uh... of you. <laughs> <laughs> there was always lots of books, lots of free books. So, and of course, this little public school grammar, 1910s little thing. Page one. This is what a noun is. This is what a verb is, and so on. And so oh, great. Through. So you were um, a happy camper. <laughs> I was, yes. And it's like a, uh, it's like um, um, the scales fall from your eyes, and suddenly mm. you have a completely different perspective. You suddenly, under, when people are talking to you, that's a verb, that's a noun, that's a, that's the subject, the object, that's the predicate, and so on. And yeah. it's it's a completely different, like a strange, but liberating experience to suddenly understand yeah. that this thing we do every day, speaking as rules, but they're not rules in the kind of stuffy, you must do this kind of way. They're the rules that make it work. Yes, yeah. She doesn't work. We wouldn't be having this podcast. <laughs> true, very true. And it's interesting, actually, because Christina as well uh, told us in the very first podcast that her love for all things Celtic also started with grammar and being able to understand how you build a sentence and how people understand the way you build a sentence. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's the most miraculous thing that we do as human beings. That's beautifully put, yeah. And it's the most exciting and interesting thing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I've never I've never lost, entirely lost that amazement I felt at that age. That's good. Yeah. So anyway, that was the start. <laughs> so German brought you eventually. I don't know got <laughs> we have to thank Germans. <laughs> Germans, yes. Wonderful language, lots of hard grammar. Yes. Ah, oh, cases. Cases. Only yeah. only for all. Yeah, we the Dutch have got rid of them a while ago, but uh, <laughs> fair play for the, to the Germans for hanging on to them. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so that was German, and then um, so you know when when I got to when I got to eighteen and was looking seventeen eighteen looking for university courses, it was obviously going to be languages. Mm. That was that was my set path by then, and it was going to be German and something else, and the something else was going to have to be exciting. <laughs> it was going to have to be something really, really exciting, and it was in the end Russian. Wow! Uh, Russian, of course, brings you a whole new world of interesting, interesting things. I know very to... little of Russian, <laughs> but I can imagine it would be very exciting to learn that language. It's yeah, well, it's it's an amazing, beautiful language in my view, and there's extraordinary literature in it. But the the, the actual meat and drink of it, the the grammar and the words are just lovely, and so that was that was what I, I chose to do, and that's how I spent my my undergraduate time. Um, and this was in Cambridge, was it? Or... Cambridge, yes. All oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. But I suppose at the same time as liking languages, I've always also liked history, hmm. and I've always been amazed by how we know about the past. And so there were always these two things I had together. It was. I loved language and grammar, structure of that language. I loved the past. I loved the idea that there were things we could read from the past. Uh, and so these things were going to come, always going to come together at some point and, and make me, I suppose, a medievalist. Yes. <laughs> who, looks at, who looks at, at the literature of the past, the distant past, uh, in, in these fascinating languages. Mm. Or would you say philologist? Because I've recently, there was a discussion up on Twitter a couple of days ago uh, where I think the Collins Dictionary under the word uh, dilemma philologist said not in common scholarly use anymore. And I was quite offended because I've always considered myself a philologist, um, but apparently I don't exist anymore. <laughs> so would no. you think of yourself more as a medievalist or a philologist? Well, both. I've never had any patience for academic um, <laughs> silo building. Mm, yes. Where this is our camp and you can't come in here and uh, mm. oh your camp doesn't do any good work with this kind of rubbish. Yes. Yeah. I love to hear that. Uh, yes. Yeah. Very inclusive approach to the Middle Ages. Yes. Well, the thing is, you see, most other 
most of these big languages like French and German, especially Middle English, which has a vast army of people studying it, let's mm. be frank, have basically done their philology. I mean, okay, there's plenty more to do, but they've done their, they've dated their text, they've edited, they've translated. In many cases, they've edited them 10, 15 times over. Mm. Like, how many editions of Beowulf are there? And so it's possible to build an entire career in Middle English or even Old French without being focused on the language at all or mm. the textual scholarship and to study the other things people like to study in literature, which is fine. You know, characters, theory, ideology, social structures, gender, race, and so on, the things that are captivate people's interests, and perfectly rightly so. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that philology has disappeared as an essential act, because none of that's possible. Exactly. None of that is possible without edited texts. Yeah. yeah. Or understanding edited texts. And small language, small areas like Irish and Welsh, just they're small, they're tiny in the number of people who study them. But they're not tiny in the amount of literature and mm. the amount of work there is to do. Okay? Welsh is a big medieval literature, and Irish is a huge medieval literature. It's the largest literature in the vernacular language anywhere in Western Europe until 1100. It's only after 1100 that languages like French or German catch mm. up and overtake Irish in how much of it there is. There are thousands and thousands of texts. And there's work to be done in basic ground level philology for decades and decades to come. And this is what is not always understood yes. by people in other disciplines mm. who seem not to realise that there's just such there's just so much fundamental spade work to be done. Yeah. And got indeed by uh, grand committees. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, or yeah, it's a topic we touched upon with Michal and Christina as well, and I think indeed yeah. Chantal, um, that so much of the groundwork still has to be done, but it's yeah. often not considered to be innovative enough, even though you're trans you're bringing a whole new text into you know into a brighter, broader yes, perspective. No. But uh, yeah, absolutely yes, I make no apologies for it. Yeah, and that's that's one yeah. of the main things. I also write about what literature actually says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm actually interested in what it says. Yeah, I'm, and so we, we plug every podcast, we plug philology and editing because it's so important. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That's yeah. like most of my career editing. Um, yeah. And without those efforts, nobody else gets to say anything. Yes. So I don't yeah. know what the issue is, really. And I, as I say, I always I hate this uh, this kind of, you know, little little ac academic Ruritanias when you pull up the drawbridge and, you know, mm -hmm. ooh, you do that. Oh, that's a bit old fashioned. <laughs> yes. Something that they used to do until about five minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how it works. It, yeah. it, academia is a subject of fashion as any other part. Of Very much so, yeah. Life. Well, a good yeah. thing that uh, old things and vintage things are now coming back into fashion. Maybe the same goes for uh, philology, like uh, hipster beards. Who knows? Never went out of fashion. <laughs> Well pushed. <laughs> I feel new merchandise coming on. A t-shirt philology never went out of fashion. <laughs> right. call it something else. You know? call it textual scholarship. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, yes, okay. It's, okay, there was 19th century philology, which was yes. a kind of massive, you know, it was a massive package that has now split in dozens of different directions. And rightly so, as, as we accumulate knowledge, so textual scholarship goes off, historical linguistics goes off in another direction, Modern linguistics emerges out of that, and then you've got different kinds of literature scholarship, you know, breaking out in all directions. So that's fine. Mm. But let's not forget that that we that there still is a philology, and we still need it. Yeah. Well, we we just went uh, quite in depth already into the type of work you do, but meanwhile we're also we're also still stuck at Russian. So. Uh... Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's grand. Yeah, so we got to well, we got to where I was a, 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 I decided to be a medievalist and, and yes, I took yeah, that's in, true. Yeah, yeah. In the in the medieval German and Russian, well, Rus' mysteries of Rus' and so on. And so, um, we finally I finally got to Welsh through thinking about these things. Because it had never occurred to me. I'm from Wales, um, yeah. but I don't speak Welsh as my first language. I'm from the, I'm from a family that in, in my, my family doesn't have Welsh. They haven't had it for several generations. Mm. I'm from the border area, where Welsh has been gone for more than a century. Although you know there are not not too far away there are Welsh speaking people, so I was aware of its existence and I studied it in school. Mm. But I have to confess, I actually didn't like it in school oh really yeah the slightest degree and i gave it up as soon as possible <laughs> so it wasn't until um 
I'd come by this very roundabout route through mm. other languages and medieval literatures that I'd begun to ask, well, actually, is there anything interesting in Welsh? Yeah. Is there anything out there? So wasn't there enough grammar in it when it was taught to you for you to realise that? Uh... Oh, there wasn't any at all. They teach, didn't teach grammar in the 1980s. Right, yes, yeah. Well, I think they still uh, they still don't, really. <laughs> but uh, I think the the new way to learn languages in, in secondary schools is to just uh, to just talk and listen and uh, not worry too much about grammar, which has its merits. But uh, for people like us who who love that aspect of languages, it's uh, it's a bit disappointing at times. It is, but I mean, there's there's two basic methods mm. in use. There's, there's that, what you described, which is the communicative method. Yes. And then there's the grammar translation method, which is the old method mm. that everyone uh, is down on. But in reality, you need both. Yes. And most language courses, if you actually look at them, um, are actually basically a combination of the two. Yeah, yeah. So they, they always say we're communicative doing the community method and you look in yes okay there's a community section and at the end of the lesson there's a little grammar translation <laughs> which no one's talking about but it's totally <laughs> we sneak it in, in. Yeah. yeah so when you look at a look at a language textbook that you pick off the shelf in a bookshop you'll, you'll very often find that it's pretending to be completely communicative mm. there's a little very solid chunk of grammar translation in every lesson, nevertheless. Right, for the nerds like us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you have to be, you have to learn through communication, mm. but you've also got to learn the nuts and bolts. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we study languages that are predominantly no longer spoken, and we are doing scholarship that absolutely requires a deep knowledge of the structure of the language, mm. and not just a, a speaker's knowledge, but an explicit knowledge. Mm. We have to be able to explain and justify yeah. and talk about what's happening. Yeah. So how did you go about um, sort of acquiring Welsh at a later stage when, you know, after you had ignored it at school uh, and found out it might actually still be interesting? How did you go about acquiring this new yeah, language? Yeah, so I, I um, obviously, you know, uh, doing modern languages, you've got to go abroad mm. for a year. Um, this was great. I was going to Germany for a year. So why didn't I just go to Germany and study Celtic languages at the <laughs> university there? I found a university that does Celtic, did at that time Celtic languages. It's called Freiburg in Breisgau. All right, yes. Um, an absolutely ravishingly beautiful city mm. in the far southwest of Germany, in the middle of literally in the Black Forest. It's one of the most, one of the loveliest spots I've ever been in. Mm. And at that time, sadly no more, but at that time there's Celtic department. Mm. And so there I was, happily for a year, with my. Uh, beer and schnitzels and, uh, <laughs> beautiful German cakes and beautiful German food oh, their bread oh yeah best food in the world German yeah, yeah, yeah. meat, bread, cheese, cake beer. <laughs> anyway, there I was with happy, happy in Germany uh, in the Black Forest with my grandmas and little Welsh and old Irish that sounds like a great time best year of my life yeah <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Been many times. <laughs> <laughs> that might have added to the, <laughs> the oh, joyfulness, yes. isn't it? Yeah. So, yes, um, yeah, I, I killed a bit of one stone. I, mm. I went to my year abroad in German and I, I managed to get a piece Yeah, that's a fantastic combination. Yeah. yeah. And was that so during then, your, uh, your master's or your bachelor's? No, no, that's the third year out of four of, of modern languages. Oh, right. So okay. When you do languages, you have to do a year abroad in mm. the middle. So, that's what I was doing. So when it came to masters, yes, I'd made the decision by then I was going to go for Welsh. Mm. And so I took a masters in the Department of Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic in 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 uh, in Cambridge mm. uh, for a year, and that's when I made that's the transition. Right. And that is you're very you're very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. Cambridge was very flexible and understanding of people who um, move. I mean, you're not moving from. You're not doing something ridiculous like moving to physics or something. Yes. But you're yeah. moving, moving from one philology to another one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's obviously yeah, it's, it's good to be able to do that. Yes, definitely, because it, uh, well, it you you end up being a scholar with a very broad view of things, able to compare a lot of things, or I don't know, build on grammatical structures, or. Oh, undoubtedly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's fair point. Yes, I mean obviously you can't. Having left medieval German at this 
very early stage. Never, never going to be an expert again. Hmm. But I've never forgotten hmm. the things I read and the scholarship I read at the time. And I still occasionally dip into what's available today. Yes. Just, yes. To, just to not forget entirely what's going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What's happening in that field. And it's always important. It's, it's hugely important to at least have some awareness of other fields. Yes. And I've, as I, we've already said in this podcast, I hate academic silos. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I love the, the breadth. Yes. Which is something that's constantly under threat in modern academia. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Because because of pressure of work and pressure of bureaucracy. Basically. Yeah. And small courses down. are always under pressure. So uh... well, people being forced to never narrow our channels to do research mm. and not given the time. Yeah. To read anything within their own field, let alone anybody else's field. Very true. Yeah. One of the the most lovely courses I did outside of Celtic studies in Utrecht was a course on medieval Dutch. So uh, yeah. shout out to the medieval Dutch department in, in Utrecht because they had such a different view on everything uh, that really, really oh, broadened yes. my perspective as well as, uh, you know, reading other medieval stories and being able to put the medieval Irish oh, ones yeah. into perspective was absolutely amazing. Yeah. Oh, it should be compulsory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think if you're doing a master's now in Utrecht, uh, a medieval studies master, you're actually, uh, you're doing a lot of these things now. So that's good. So at least that uh, is in the system now. Yeah, yeah. And then you went on to do a PhD, I assume. I did, yes. Yes. At the end of the the year, yeah. So I was doing this, I did my master's. And the master's was on uh, medieval religious poetry in Welsh, which was, uh, it was maybe my... particular favorite choice but I, I did that because I don't really have any religious um, education hmm. didn't know the Bible terribly well at all and I had no clue of Christian doctrine and especially Catholic doctrine hmm. and if you're going to be a medievalist you really got you really have to deal with this so very true <laughs> I would be the same and I was very jealous of my friends in in Utrecht, who came from a religious background, <laughs> oh yes, because <laughs> they were very well well versed in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. So here was my chance to take a year to 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 knuckle down and read mm. about this, you know, the basics and fundamentals of Catholic doctrine, the basic Bible passages you need to know. And then at the end of the year, well, basically my supervisor threw me out. Sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> not not in a bad way. Okay, good. Said, he said very clearly that he wasn't going to supervise me um, because I should go to Wales. Aha, uh-huh. yes. Okay. That's <laughs> and he basically just showed me the door. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he's right. A gentle oh. push and shove into the right <laughs> direction. <laughs> well, he's, he's, uh, he's a very gentle man, mm. but a very, very determined man. Yes. Um, still a great friend of mine. But yes, um, so... Off I went to Wales after a little hesitation because I wasn't at all sure I wanted to go home. Mm-hmm. It was a big, a big thing to get back from Cambridge to Aberystwyth. Mm. My parents were a little bit uh, not not quite sure of this. Oh this really? Leader. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, I took the plunge and I went to Aberystwyth, and it's a completely, yeah, it's a completely different experience. There I was now. Speaking Welsh all the time. Mm. So my supervisor, the rest of the department, um, in the library, and to most of my friends I met there. That must have been amazing. It was like it was like that year abroad I had in Freiburg, mm. except it was in my own country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For an English-speaking Welsh person who's never had the language, it's a completely bizarre experience to be. Mm. Walking down streets with the same kind of street signs and the same shops and the same kind of people you meet at home, but they're not speaking English. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yeah, the first six months were pretty tough. I can imagine that as well. Uh... <laughs> because I'm, yeah, I'm, all the meetings are in Welsh. I'm writing in Welsh by this time. Oh, wow. Yeah. PhD is in Welsh. There just isn't any better way of, tra- of getting. The training done yeah so but that's definitely that's a plunge and that's definitely very very tough i can imagine yeah yeah, yeah. so that's that's what i did yeah i spent two years working on a phd and then i got a job 
and good timing. Uh, a job came up in a research job in the research institute that's located in Aberystwyth Centre for Advanced Welsh and Celtic Studies. And I wanted someone to edit medieval Welsh poetry. Wow, that sounds so, like a perfect fit. <laughs> indeed, I think there are only two candidates. <laughs> <laughs> so, and see here the advantage of our field sometimes. <laughs> extremely advantageous, yes, because of course the, the material was edited in Welsh. Mm. So the work was in Welsh. So not only do you have to know the medieval language, but the modern language as well. So the candidates were very few. Yes. So it was a very lucky break. Yeah. And I don't know what would happen to me if it hadn't had that break, but in the end, I got it. And so I moved to the Ganolfan, that's what we call it in Welsh, the, the centre, Ganolfan. It's usually called the Ganolfan in Aberystwyth. And I began work. I started the PhD part-time, of course, but um, I began work on editing. A poet called, well, he's called Griffith Atmeredith Ap Davith. Uh, he's from the late 14th century, from Anglesey, which is, a, if people don't know the topography of Wales, it's the big island off the northwest coast of Wales. Um, so he lived between about 13... He worked, was working between about 1340 and 1390-ish, I suppose. Um, and I was working on mostly his praise poetry. Mm. for So poems in honour of local uh, landowners and gentlemen on Anglesey, mainly. Um, very interesting, very difficult. Did you know him before you started the project? Yes, I knew him from the PhD because he's also the pre the preeminent religious poet right. of the 14th century. Yeah, yeah. More more poetry by him than anybody else right. on religious thing. Very interesting poetry as well. Poems to God, poems to the Virgin Mary, and a fascinating, long, dense, and very difficult poem in honour of a an image of Christ. Mm. What's called a holy rood which was just over the border in Chester. Mm. Uh, Chester is a border city in England. And there's a church there, St. John's. And in that church, there was a famous image of Christ on the cross, which attracted pilgrims, particularly from, well, from England, but particularly from Wales. And there are a whole series of Welsh poems about it from the later Middle Ages. But Griffith is the, is the first of these poems and the longest and the fullest and the most interesting. So, I, I knew what I was in for. Okay, you're you're saying this, and of course the listeners can't see this, but you're looking quite <laughs> hesitant about this. <laughs> so were you a fan or were you terrified starting on that? <laughs> terrified. I was certainly aware that I was in a in a fight. Right. Yeah. 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 This is uh, notoriously some of the toughest poetry in Middle Welsh. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I had a lot of help from the. And guidance from the rest of the team there. Oh, that's great. And especially from my uh, um, from the team leader, um, Dr. Anne Perry Owen, who guided me through the first uh, uh, few months of pain. And of course, the training I'd had with my PhD supervisor, mm. uh, Professor Margaret Haycock, was yeah, yeah. superb and, and had prepared me for the fray, as it were. Right, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, those are amazing scholars in the field of uh, medieval Welsh. Two, um, two. I was extremely yeah. lucky to be, to work with yeah. two, and and Oliver Pardle, my my Phil supervisor. And in so Cambridge. important to remember as well that what we do really is teamwork, even though it doesn't always show on a book cover or on uh, oh, on teamwork. an article title. But it's always teamwork. We're never. Uh, oh yes, yes. We're never yeah. going down these roads alone, yeah. thankfully. So yeah. No, that's right. Yes. yes. Yeah, that's very good. So that's how I, that's really what the story really, and I stayed in the Ganolvan for really um, until 2014. Mm. When when you came to Dublin for I came to, Dublin, uh, yeah, yes. to the Institute, yeah. And, and also, very, yeah, worthy of note that you have uh, not only now acquired beautiful Welsh, but also beautiful Irish uh, since you have well, arrived to the Ireland's. <laughs> so fair play. I've never reached the same level in Irish and I probably never will. Oh, but it's still time, Barry. <laughs> well, I, I have to confess that I think it gets harder with age. Actually. Well, yeah, that that is true, unfortunately, I think. But uh, I think it is true. Not everyone agrees. People, are, there do seem to be actually, actually disputes about, about among linguists about whether it's true. Hmm. But in my experience, it's true. I don't know if it's anything biological or just 
the pressures of work and other concerns, or whether they're just you just have too much else to read. Yes, well, but yes. I do find learning languages much harder now than I did uh, when I was uh, in my yeah. teens and twenties. I yeah. have to say. Yeah, and it's a different it's environment as well because. I suppose when in Aberystwyth you walk down the street, like you were saying, you'd meet people and you'd start off in in Welsh. And this just happens a little little less in Dublin, I suppose. Uh, even though if you yeah, meet people whom, just, yeah, whom you know have Irish, this might happen. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's a different social. And of course, the, the difference is that most people in Aberystwyth are native speakers, hmm. whereas most people you meet in Dublin are second language speakers. Yeah, that's the difference as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, about about a third of Aberystwyth people are native speakers of Welsh, hmm. and about half people in the county. That it's located in Ceredigion, mm. so there's, you're you're exposed to the full richness of native speaker language yes. in a way that is very hard to recreate in Irish. You have to go to the Gaeltacht, and that's not easy to spend a lot of time in the Gaeltacht. Mm. Yeah. Uh, even at a language course, isn't isn't really the same thing. It's, no, yeah, no, it's a uh, it's like a pressure cooker. It's uh, very yes. uh, intense, but also usually quite brief. So. Uh, Yes, that's true. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But anyway, moving back to your saints, um, because we always do shameless plugs for the books we have at the Institute for sale. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so here we go, Barry. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it I guess. so happens that Barry has a lovely book with us on these uh, medieval Welsh religious poems on saints and shrines that can be bought in our bookshop. Uh, so that's if you want to know more about this. Uh, feel free to uh, purchase this. We sometimes um, have a nice uh, discount on, so maybe for St. David's Day or something, we can uh, we can make sure the Welsh books have a have a discount. That might be nice. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> we'll ask around about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so is that a, did that book come out of um, of your work uh, in Wales, or was that an entirely different project? This book. Um... The germ of it was back in my first year of PhD, mm. when my first job was to collect every poem I could find in, in Middle Welsh that was religious. Oh, wow. Proper groundwork. Yeah. yeah. Well, I made a big list of all of them. And it became apparent there were lots of poems to saints. Now, there are three that are in the 12th century and have been well worked over. But there were dozens from the late Middle Ages, from about the end of the 14th century to about the time of the Reformation. Mm. which would be 40, 1530s, 40s in Wales. So these have never been really edited or touched, except a few of them had come out in editions of the individual poets' works. But right. the majority were untouched. And I found them very, very interesting. You were like the Indiana Jones of medieval Welsh poetry. <laughs> <laughs> All this new material never been touched. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. And sad, but also amazing when you start to walk, work on it. Yeah. I mean, there were collections. There, there was a, there's a, there were collections of them, come out in the 1910s and 20s, mm. but they were not complete collections. They didn't really have critical editions. It didn't really, certainly didn't have translation or discussion. But as I got into the second year of PhD, it was obvious that I wasn't going to be able to work on this material because this wasn't going to be time. Right. So I drew a line at 1400 on the mm. PhD, which meant all virtually all these poems fell on the wrong side. Mm. So they went into a, a folder and disappeared into the oblivion of the, the filing cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> Until I, I can't remember, about 2007 or eight, I was approached by the editors of the Red Book series, and that's uh, Nerizan Jones, mm. who's in Edinburgh, and Brynny Roberts in Aberystwyth. And they um, asked me to contribute a volume. And the idea came to me finally to get this stuff out of the filing cabinet, where uh -huh, I put yes. it less than one or two-ish, or even before then, 2000-ish, <laughs> and um, make something of it and make an anthology of poems in honour of Welsh saints. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I decided to do in the end. It's only, uh, it's an anthology. There's 25 poems in there. Mm -hmm. So it's around about a third of the poems in honour of Welsh saints that are available. Right. But I've also added in a few that are to universal Christian saints. 
Mm. It might be um, St. Margaret, say. Right. And there's a couple to the Virgin Mary. That's only a, that's a selection out of what there is a large corpus of those. Mm. And I've also added one or two poems in honour of the Holy Rood, um, which, again, there are lots of those. Mm. And there's one or two poems in there about pilgrimage as well. So there's a couple mm. of poems about pilgrimage to Rome and Santiago de Compostela in Spain. That's very interesting. Because uh, I don't know, I think most of our listeners would know, but um, medieval, the medieval people would go on pilgrimage abroad usually, but also maybe within the country to visit the shrines of saints and maybe oh, yes. uh, get healed or uh, acquire the favour of a, a particular saint. And these travels would be quite perilous uh, if they were to go abroad, for example, to travel from Wales to Santiago in the in the medieval period would be fraught with danger, you might imagine. And I think I remember reading in your introduction that in the collection there is a, a poem as well written for or commissioned perhaps by the wife of a, a pilgrim, um, maybe to comfort her. Do you remember yes, that at right. all? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes um, going to Santiago was dangerous. Mm. Um, it's dangerous because you've got to go across the sea. And also, it's pretty hairy in the 14th century because there's quite a lot of things going on on the land side. Mm. Uh, there's a little thing called the Hundred Years' War going, going on. <laughs> Tiny in, little thing, yeah. In, uh, now and again, obviously, the Hundred Years' War was rather off and on affair, mm. but that could make it a bit difficult to travel through France. Yes, yeah. So if you're coming from Wales, I mean, you're going to sail from the south coast of Wales or maybe around England, or maybe pass through England on the way and take another boat from the south coast, maybe, or go by road to the south coast of England and take a boat from there. Then if you don't like boats, you'd want to cross the channel and head through France. But as I say, that's difficult to impossible. Mm. And also extremely slow. Yes. Because yes, travel yes. by sea is a lot faster in the Middle Ages than travel by land. So you'd probably sail south across the Bay of Biscay. And then your choices would be to land in Gascony, which is English-controlled territory in southwest France at this period, and then take the long Camino along the north coast of Spain, which involves you in all kinds of other political issues. (laughs) (laughs) Or you could sail directly all the way across the Bay of Biscay and land in La Coruña in Galicia and take the last few um, uh, miles by foot. Mm. So there are a number of ways of doing it. None of them are easy. Yes. Across the Bay of Biscay in in, in a 14th, 15th century boat not pleasant experience no i, I don't so we we can understand why this particular wife of a pilgrim would have been worried oh yes uh, very worried. she's praying to saints and, yes. and offering offering candles and so on in front of shrines to get her husband back home yes yeah. yes it's a dangerous thing to do yeah and a very touching poem to find it's a beautiful poem. yeah yeah and it's, it's uh, although it's by a man a lois Coffee, as mm-hmm. virtually all welsh poetry is it at least is attempting to give a voice to mm. a, woman, a woman's concerns. On that note, I don't know if you have your own book near you. Yes, I do, yes. 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 Could you maybe read a bit from that poem? Um, just let me find this. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> All right. Yes, so the poet is Lewis Glyn Cothy, um, one of the best-known 15th-century Welsh poets, prolific poet. We've got over 208. We've got over 200 poems by Lewis Glencothy. Very good. Now, the patron, um, she's called Anne. Common name in the middle ages. Anne S. has the um, pet form, the familiar form he's using to to talk to her. Um, Her husband's called Griffith. Okay. She lives in a place called Llandrishla in Merionithshire. So that's really in the middle Mm. of North Wales. A long way inland, a long way from the sea. So she's not going to be familiar with the sea. Right. You know, and she's, this, is a, this is a deeply foreign um, concept. And she's stuck alone here in, well, she obviously has her servants and so on, but mm. her husband's away. That's not a safe thing to happen in the Middle Ages. No. Even, no. In, even in the 15th century. Um, you know, 
you want you want the man of the house around. Yes. Because it's not it's not <laughs> it's not society where a, a lone woman is entirely safe. On, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's property, especially when there's property in the question. So, and and children's interests to look after. Mm. So yes, you want to hear a little bit of um of the poem then. If, if you would, yes, that would be beautiful. I'll, I'll drop in. Okay. My anes santamino, a dear of war, a droivo. Merhoel, gailu, ar elian. I got a sight, ar groiswen. A dear griffith, I scraffoid, like a long moor, yagoluid. Guithiao gashlaur guir shain, a roidanes, ar duinwen. Saint Anne Griffith, you Annes. Saint Anne when, moist and timeless. Annes, a oithen he is saint. Wow, and Bilgar, and Bulgaint. Ar Trisha, ar Unia win. Agariago, I Gregin. Ar Shong Vaur, a Eshung Vo. Droy Egion, I dear Yago. Beautiful. Could you add a small translation for our listeners as well? Okay, so my Annes and Diminar, Annes desires to turn him to the land, back from the sea. Mer Hoel, so the daughter of Hoel, Giluar Elian, she's calls to Saint Elian. Now he's a, a, a quite a well known Northwest Wales saint. Mm. Okay. And so she's calling to Elian, I got a saint at Groiswen, and the other saints and the Holy Cross. Okay, so that's Christ on the cross. It's mm. always at the centre of, of these devotions. In spite of the importance of saints, there's always a focus on on the actual, on actual redeemer, Christ, to whom these saints direct their appeals. Okay, a dear Griffith, I scraffoid, I long more, I That line's really difficult. <laughs> I spent a long time worrying about scraffoid, but I think it means the day that he took ship. But I don't want to. All right, interesting. Yeah. Problems there. <laughs> so that actually... those are sort of words that are unattested elsewhere. Oh yeah, there's no. Uh, well, it's clearly taken from scraff, a scraff, which is kind of boat, and then mm. made into a verb. But but um, uh, anyway, perhaps we won't go into the problems. <laughs> yeah, no, that's grand. But it's just, it. I think it's interesting that these poems lay on touch for so long, and they're not only really interesting for sort of the cultural view that they provide us of the medieval religious experience and the medieval world, but also for the vocabulary. That oh, might yes. not be attested elsewhere. Yeah. No, this is unique. I don't think a scraff here goes anywhere else, mm. but it is clearly from a scraff, a kind of boat. Yeah. But um, even Lewis, Lewis, Lewis Linkothi, you know, he's we're talking the 1460s, 70s, and 80s here, so we're, we're right at the end of the Middle Welsh period. The language isn't as hard as the 12th century. Then, you know, mm. but you know, if you if you think about English of that period, modern English speakers can pretty well manage to read a 15th century text. And modern Welsh speakers can pretty well manage mm. most of Lois Linkothi. But it's not as easy as all that when you get right. down. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, where were we? Yeah, so he goes to the sea of Holy Iago. Iago is the Welsh for St. James. St. James, of course, the apostle, is the saint of Santiago de Compostela. Mm. It's his, his relics that are worshipped there. So that on that very day when when Griffith took to boat, his wife was praying alongside the clergyman. So she got the local parish priest mm. and so on to pray with her. Oh. And yeah. curate and so on, okay. And she's praying, so she's praying to St. Duinwen, a female saint, mm. uh, another important North Wales saint. Um, uh, and then it, it makes a play on her name, Saint Anne Griffith, the Annes. So Annes is Griffith's St. Anne. Oh, okay. yes. St. Anne, of course, is the, is the, uh, the mother of the Virgin Mary and a very, very important saint throughout Christendom in the 15th century in particular. Her mm -hmm. cult is very prominent. So many people are called Anne across Europe and Annes has been named after her. And she's praying to St. Anne, her patron saint. Her Apart from the, you know, she's, uh, St. Anne is her particular personal saint because she says her name her. Um, Saint Anne when moist and tineness, and then the poet says, "Oh, please, Saint Anne, bring him nearer to us." Okay. Annes was in the, temp in the in the house of the saints, the church then. Uh, Waur and Bilgar, short Waur is there. 
could be lady or it could be dawn. So, <laughs> <laughs> they're the same word. So, interesting. I'm Bill Gar, so plaintively. Um, um, I can't think of the word now. Um, uh, yeah, plaintively. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Bill Gaines, at dawn, at matins, at the religious uh, service, first thing in the morning. So two more saints, okay? Trishlo, now that's the the parish saint. He's at San Trishlo, church. So Trishlo is the patron of a church. And Gunyo, another saint. And of course, Yago, Igregin. Yago, St. James. And his seashells. Mm, yes, the okay, famous his... pilgrimage sign of... Yeah. Uh... Okay, so yeah, the, yeah. the um, scallop shell is the, is, the, is the symbol of St. James. Mm. And the great ship will um, send him freely through the ocean to the land of James. Lovely. Thank you. Right. I'm sorry for you're putting welcome. you on the spot, but it was very beautiful. So I'm guessing it was worth it, even if you're severely traumatized now. <laughs> <laughs> it's been quite a few years since I looked. Look, this, this book came out in 2015 and I haven't actually... Yes done much with the poem since then so. yes but it was it was beautiful so thank you for uh, you're welcome for being yeah. willing to uh, yeah. to read that with us and so if that book came out in 2015 what is now your current uh what are now your current aims or your current projects are you still onto or into saints or is something i'm still with saints for my sins yeah. <laughs> many sins to expiate <laughs> so i've done well last year i put in I submitted a book and it's just come back with all the reviewers' comments, actually. Oh, yeah, that's always... Which were not too bad. Oh, good. Actually. Oh, I'm very happy to hear that. Yes, Excellent, yes. So, yeah. So this is an edition of uh, another medieval Welsh text about saints, but not poetry this time. Okay. Something much, a little bit harder to get into. It's called Bon of the Saint, and it's a set of, of genealogies of saints. Oh, right. Oh, very different genre in the... Extremely, in the and... Yeah rather peculiar in, in perhaps in, in European terms, as we don't really think of collecting the family trees of saints as being an especially common practice, mm. but it was a common practice in medieval Wales and medieval Ireland. Yes, yes. Because people felt um, an important connection to their local saints, which they often expressed by um, considering their saints as descendants of famous Welsh families or Cornish families or Breton families or other mm. other families whose roots were in those parts of the world where a Bretonic Celtic language was spoken. Yes. So Welsh, Cornish, Breton and so on. They thought of, of their saints as coming from the prestigious families of these areas. It might be kings' families chiefly mm. or, the, or the families of famous heroes and warriors of legend. And so we have a big collection of these things. Um, you start with, you know, a typical entry starts with the saint's name, David, patron saint of Wales, of course. David, son of Sant, son of Keredig, son of Kedig, who I think is a copying error. Right, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Something we've touched yeah. upon before as well in the podcast, yes. that while I'm copying, sure weird things may happen to your text. <laughs> Indeed, I don't think there ever was a Kedig, but mm. anyway. Kedig, son of Kinetholetic. So we've gone back several generations and we've reached Cunether, who was a very important ancestor figure uh, for various branches of medieval Welsh royalty. Mm. So that's put St. David, as it were, in a particular place. He now has a father. He's a grandfather, Kiledig, who is the first king of a particular part of Wales, Kiledigion, where there's lots of David churches. Mm. And then he goes back through Kiledig and Cunether, to this even more prestigious ancestor figure who is the ancestor of the kings of North Wales. Right. Okay. So what you've done is to put David, the saint to whom you're attached as a religious figure, as, as a protector, in a, in a cultural context that is meaningful hmm. to medieval Welsh people. And so there's, there's, the text has more than 60 of these things in it. And it grows over time till it's about 100. Ah, yes, yeah. Okay. And where, where will you publish this book? Uh, with the Dublin Institute, hopefully. Um, Excellent. That's the plan, anyway. Something um, to look uh, forward to, yeah. Yeah, the, the reviewers think it's okay, so that's 
a major hurdle overcome. Yes. The next hurdle is my laziness, and I have to know. <laughs> Go through the pages of corrections and suggestions. And yeah, that's always really hard work. I don't know if yeah. if uh, if people who listen know that but academic books always go through a very long process where they have to be proofread by our peers peer review to make sure we're not saying anything <laughs> indeed, yes. indeed yes and, uh, yes which is a very good course process. Are, yeah oh sorry the reviewers of course are anonymous yes yes um but this is a very small field <laughs> yes. so it's very much a, it is unmanageably tempting yes for celtic scholars to try and work out who they are yes Yes. I've got a pretty good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so peer reviewers out there, be warned. <laughs> Barry knows who you are. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm happy with reviewer one. I'm still thinking about reviewers. It's always there, reviewer yeah. two. Yeah. No, it's... Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, they're both very kind. I'm just happy with my identification. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All anyway. right. Yeah. Anyway. No, but it's very hard sometimes to... Uh, when you've... It's hard work writing a book in the first place and then sometimes it's hard to find the motivation to work on all mm. the the comments and additions or corrections yeah. or so it's sometimes hard to, <laughs> hard to do that so i feel your pain but i'm sure i'm sure you'll overcome it and uh, it'll be a brilliant book oh yes well they're, yeah. they're, to be fair they, 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 the corrections are very good oh yes yeah they're yeah, very, yeah they're very helpful when, when peer review is done properly as it nearly always is yes yeah it's a major improvement certainly and yeah. it's an essential stage in what we do because yes. whatever we put out there is going to be full of errors. Yes. <laughs> okay, this thing is, this book is three or 400 pages long, mm. contains hundreds of personal names and, and, and place names and, and notes on all of them. And there's no way any one person can be the master. And, yes. if the, yes. and by the way, the text is in over 90 manuscripts, mm. yeah. all of which I have to look at. Yeah. So there's no way that any one person is master of all this material. Very true. I actually, it goes, as a coincidence, yeah. I found, a, I was reading some of Marcia Drac's um, material uh, for a video that has come out at the Institute and I saw one of her quotes, uh, an, um, a public lecture that was directed at her students and she says too um, that collaboration really is the, the cornerstone of our work because no one person can be the master of all and we need to be able to uh, acquire something new together and I actually thought that was rather lovely uh, of course it's not as lovely in my English as it was in her Dutch but uh, <laughs> yeah I think the point kind of comes across <laughs> absolutely yes so even in 1946 Celsus were aware of this uh, oh yes yeah well yeah. we write for other people yes and we write for ourselves because we we love the action of of, of producing a new thought or a, a new sort of a new idea or something about the past but if we can't communicate that with somebody else mm. who's also interested in what we're interested in, I don't yes. know what we're here for. Oh, wow. I think Marty Drac would really like you because uh, <laughs> that was her. Uh, that was what she was all about as well. So uh, I don't know. For for those of you who do not know Marty Drac, she was professor of Celtic studies at two Dutch universities uh, in Utrecht and Amsterdam uh, uh, in the 20th century. So, uh, yeah. We all love her. She's an amazing woman. All right, but let's go back to uh, Welsh and not my uh, mm. my fangirling over Marcia Drac because it's uh, it's a bit distracting. But um, so now you're working on, over, or well, yeah, you're working on a new book of uh, saints. And I also know because you're teaching a seminar at the school that deals with uh, medieval Welsh grammatical texts. Mm. Is that something you see as a future project, uh, maybe to uh, to lead on into the question? Kesht. To what place is your road that I also uh, also use? Yes, um, yes, I do. I do. I think I'd like to do something with the Welsh um, grammars. I'm not totally sure what to do with them yet. Mm. They haven't. They're fairly. They're fairly neglected. I mean, we have at least a critical edition back from some oh, the 30s, first half of the 20th century, mm. anyway. Uh, and that's now showing its age. And there's never been a translation. And I think the lack of a translation of the Middle Welsh grammatical tracts has really held back mm. scholarship on them. Perhaps I should explain that these texts are, are they're, they're short accounts of fairly simple Welsh grammar, starting with the letters, then syllables, then a little bit about 
not very much about nouns and verbs and adjectives and so on. And then there's a much, they get to the meat, because these things are for poets, okay? Mm. And this is the meter, the metrics, and there's a detailed section on that. And then there's some quite interesting material on um, how to praise different kinds of people, mm. everyone from God down to uh, a local, uh, a minor local gentleman and so on. And there's a section on how to praise different kinds of women. And, uh, That's very interesting. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, most of it's, you know, fairly obvious. You praise men for being brave. And, right. And <laughs> generous. And you praise women for being womanly. Yes. Nice. You get the idea. Okay. Yes. It is is the 14th century. Yeah, we'll grant them that. (laughs) Um, But anyway, and then there's a section on faults, and a section, and there's a section at the end which are things called triads. Mm. Now, triads are summaries of information in threes. So the three things that make a poem good Mm. are this, this, and this. The three things that make a poet poet's reputation and this this and this the three faults that you can commit in this particular line are this this and, this and so on okay so these these tracts that's what the tracts are they're really well as we have them they're from the 1320s 30s hmm. okay at least the oldest ones we have right now what is how as, as i say what has held back scholarship on these is there's never been there's never been an english translation which means that people who are interested in the analysis of language, as in medieval linguistics, medieval people who study the linguistics of the Middle Ages, how people thought about language, cannot access these texts. Mm. So what we really need to do is to make them available for people um, who know about medieval grammar, which means mainly Latin grammar, so that we can find out how these texts actually relate mm. to medieval grammatical doctrine, because I don't have the expertise to yeah. Yeah. start going into medieval Latin grammars. I mean, in the seminar, I've been casting around trying to find parallels in in some of the most famous Latin grammars that were used in the Middle Ages, but I'm out of my depth. Mm. Yeah. And the texts are not doing anything straightforwardly. They're clearly not following any of the famous. Latin grammars like Donatus or Priscian mm. that we used all over Europe. They're clearly using. They're clearly following something more modern. That's also very interesting. Yeah. So, but I don't know what it was, and I don't think I'm ever going to find out. So oh, I don't think, give up hope, Barry. <laughs> oh, it's just it's not my field. Yes, and it's it's a huge yeah. field of its own. Yeah, but I'm sure once they're accessible, yeah. this will be a great basis for collaboration. Exactly. I'd like to do some something, and I haven't quite decided mm. what to do yet. And whether a full critical edition is a huge task, yeah, or just a translation of something, to make these texts available to people who, who could then do the work for me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope any classicist or uh, medio Latinist is listening. <laughs> We'd like to, in- uh, yeah. <laughs> We'd like to do interdisciplinarity. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> very good and uh, another question we always ask in the podcast is uh, the question it is not from study that you uh, that you take that or that you have thought that up and uh, I use that question to ask if life outside academia uh, or outside of uh, studying grammar inspires you so I wonder I wonder if it's trying to avoid life outside academia. <laughs> <laughs> no, in, in seriousness, um, yes. What, what on what that? Yeah, okay, what we do seems esoteric for most people, but ultimately, you're in the humanities, you're in the business of studying human beings, hmm. and to my mind, the human beings of the past deserve the same study as, as the human beings who live today, hmm. and. In many ways, going back to the past of your own country, or even a part of Europe, which may seem like, you know, it's it's a Eurocentric, perhaps way of doing things, but that is as foreign as going to a part of the world mm. that we don't, that is it's not Europe, yeah. and looking at cultures that are very different there, and Middle Ages were very very different. Yes. 
they were not they were not what we do today. We've already hinted at that in the in the in the in the Bardic grammar's attitude to social distinctions, shall we say? Yes. Um, it's the challenge of understanding this culture, which is deeply foreign and in many ways a culture that I absolutely would not want to live in. Hmm. I wouldn't want to live in the Middle Ages, leaving aside the incredible toughness, physical toughness of life at that time. The social structures were ones that we as, as 21st century people would find, ex- mm. most most of us would find unbearably. I wouldn't be very good at just being womanly, I don't think. So, uh... um, yeah, the thing is, you wouldn't have a choice. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> Which is why I, I love the Middle Ages and I'd love to have a sneak peek if it were possible, but I wouldn't want to live there, no. <laughs> no, indeed. And I, I've always been amazed. I've always been struck by the challenge of looking at these texts that are six, seven, eight hundred years old, long older in some cases, mm. and finding something to some way of communicating. But they can still say something to us today, even if, even if it's something we wouldn't find comfortable. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that we're all in humanities, whether we're studying um, the, the classical literature whether we're studying the ancient literature of India, or whether you're going to um, to look at modern oral cultures, whether in a modern Western country, looking at street culture, or whether you're going to um, you're going to Africa, Asia, Australia, South America, and looking at how cultures work there. It's all one enterprise. Yeah. And medieval Wales and medieval Ireland are obviously tiny, tiny corners of the enterprise, but but few people um, can ever manage to, to look at more than the tiny corner of the mm. enterprise of humanities anyway. And there's an awful lot to do in this little corner of ours. Yes. And not many of us to do it. Very true. So we have no apology for, for what I do. And I don't, although I sometimes have, always have, always had language envy and culture envy. You know? Yeah, same. Think, oh, I'd like to do that. You know? yeah. I'd like to learn that. I'd love to learn that, you know, every language people come up, you meet people who are studying amazing things. Mm. I'd like to have another another lifetime to do that instead. But ultimately, I made a choice when I was in my early 20s, and it was the right choice Mm. for me. That's beautiful. Yeah, very well put, Barry. You're welcome. That's uh, That's a good answer to that question. All right. I think that wraps up all my questions and everything I wanted to ask you. So is there anything that I forgot to ask you or that you want to talk about or that you want to plug? Because feel free to plug many more cool things that you do. Uh, no, I think you've already um, embarrassed me enough with your plug. For my <laughs> Always um, happy to embarrass you, Barry. The uh, Bond of the Science will possibly be out, but not in not not in any rapid, rapid right. pace. Yes. So that's a and cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously it's not easy in lockdown. That's true. That has uh, it has definitely impacted all of our work uh, as well. Yes. And of course, we're very lucky to uh, to have work at this distressing time. But it's very difficult to uh, to find material and find references and. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm working on a, at the, this the tail end of a project, hmm. because obviously. Beginning a project now means going to research actual manuscripts in actual libraries, and that at the moment is not possible. Yes, yeah. So really, we're we're all of us pretty well stuck uh, working on material we already have. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah. So Barry, really, there's no excuse for not finishing a book pretty soon, <laughs> by the sound of it. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Health and rules permitting. Okay. It'll be done in the first half of this year. Right. Um, yeah. back, um, back to the publications committee. Mm. Well before Christmas. That will be that will be very good. Something to look forward to. Yes. Hopefully by then we're, we've all had our vaccinations and uh, we can uh, we, ha- we well, can indeed, have a good yeah. book launch. <laughs> that will be launch good. and travel again and see people yeah. and talk because that's that's what our, our subject is. Mm. Humanities is, is people. Yes. And not being able to talk to people, yes, and have and go to conferences and 
you know, all the surrounding activities of the conference scene, shall we say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am quite surprised because I'm... I always feel a bit introverted and I, I used to hate conferences, um, but I'm actually really missing them at the moment. So <laughs> I suppose that's something to come out of the lockdown. <laughs> I'm missing every aspect except the actual work, the actual writing paper. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. it always horrible. Yeah. But the uh, the other bits of conferencing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely missing those. So uh, let's uh, finish this podcast with the with the hope that we'll soon be able to conference again Absolutely, and, uh, yes. to and launch and your new book. Absolutely. And the recognition that, as I, as you, as you've already said, we're we're lucky. Yes. You know, we, mm. um, other people have it much worse than we do. Yes. In, a, in every conceivable way. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And a podcast came out of lockdown. So there you go. <laughs> It's been, right. a, been a very good series. And it's, oh, uh, thanks. That's great to hear. Yeah. Doing this. Excellent. Thank you. That's great. That's another positive note to end the podcast on. So that wraps up episode number six. Thank you very much, uh, Barry, for all your uh, wonder wonderfully put statements on the humanities and on Welsh and for your reading out a poem on the spot and translating it. So Jolhan Bauer. And uh, yeah, I hope everybody will tune in again for episode number seven, which will be a very special edition with two guests. So see you then. Slán. Will Howl.